The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. So today is the is Tuesday the 19th of June 2018 and uh, this is a, the second of two Taishons um, about the ten cardinal precepts. Um, so we're, we're going to start at number six and, and go from there and see how far we get. I think we might not quite make it to ten. I was um, optimistic about that when I started the talk but by the time I got near the end I, I figured I had enough material for just maybe the first three or four. But anyway we're doing this, we're having this this topic at the moment because um, in a few weeks we're having what we call a Jakai ceremony. This is something that we do twice a year. We do it at midnight on the 1st of January and then we also do it somewhere around midwinter at Matariki. And this year, uh, we just changed the date, and this year it's a little bit later than usual. It's going to be on the 15th of July in the evening, Sunday. And this Jukai ceremony is the most important ceremony, really, that we have um, in our tradition. And it's uh, a ceremony in which everybody who comes receives um, from the teacher 16 precepts and um, these are made up of um, three groups um, first one is is um, taking refuge in what are known as the three jewels or treasures uh, in Buddha Dharma and Sangha and th um, they can be into that those three can be interpreted in different ways but essentially Buddha is both the historical Buddha, uh, the founder of Buddhism, Shakyamuni, and also just our own enlightened nature, um, our, innate, our, innate, our innate wisdom. And then the Dharma can be interpreted as his teachings, but also just as the laws of the universe. So um, cats have kittens, or um, Spring follows winter. Dharma with a small d just means phenomena. Um, and then the last one, Sangha, um, strictly speaking, it's community of uh, uh, people practicing Buddhism. It's sometimes known as the fourfold Sangha, the monks, the nuns, um, the lay women and the lay men. Uh, but we could also broaden it out a lot and just say all people of goodwill and even broaden it further and just say all beings. So that's the three jewels and then there are three general resolutions to do no harm, to do good and to liberate all living beings. And then that's followed by ten very much more specific vows which um, really sort of spell out what it means to do no harm, to do good, and to, to liberate all living beings. And so in these two talks, last time and this time, we've been looking at these ten specific vows. Um, and originally they were um, all framed in the negative, so not to do something. Um, and our teacher's teacher, when he brought them to the West, added a positive um, sort of 
end piece. So each one has, is couched in both negative way and a positive way. And um, last time we were looking, we looked briefly at each of the first five, um, which, which are the most basic ones and the ones that are the same in all traditions, all Buddhist traditions as far as I know. And um, again, just for people who weren't here last time, um, the first five are in, in short form, um, not to kill, not to steal, um, not to engage in harmful sex, not to lie, and not to deal in or use intoxicants. So we looked at those five. And uh, these, um, after these first five, then the, the second lot, there's quite a bit of variation in, in, in within Buddhism about what these, the, 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 the second five precepts are. And ours come uh, from China, originally through um, Japanese Soto Zen, so through, um, through our lineage. And, um, but you can, you can trace them all the way back to the Buddha the Buddha's first teaching of the Four Noble Truths, where he sets out the Eightfold Path, and we'll be on Sunday in our third Dharma study session. We'll be we'll be looking at um, how they you can see those precepts, sort of in um, in essence in the in the um, Eightfold Path. But the ones that we're going to look at tonight are. Um, I resolve not to gossip about the faults of others, but to be to acknowledge my own shortcomings. Um, I resolve not to praise myself and disparage others, but to speak with humility and extol virtue. Um, I resolve not to withhold spiritual and material aid, but to give them freely where needed. And then the last two, which we probably won't get to, uh, I resolve not to indulge in anger, but to practice forbearance. And I resolve not to revile the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, but to cherish and uphold them. Before we get into them, just wanted to um, talk a little bit about how um, we've been exploring these these precepts. Um, we looked, and we will be looking at each from three different perspectives or ways of interpreting them. And um, the, we can link these to the three general resolutions I mentioned, to do no harm, sometimes so translated to refrain from evil, or, or um, yeah, refrain from evil, uh, to do good and to liberate all living beings. Because when we look at each precept, we look at a, its literal meaning, and then um, the Mahayana meaning, the great vehicle meaning, and then finally, from the perspective of Buddha nature. And um, we can say that this first one, the literal meaning, um, connects up to the first of those three general resolutions of to do no harm. Um, it's the one in which we kind of follow the letter of the law. And it, it's, it's got a sort of slightly passive feel about it in that we're avoiding doing evil. We could say we're sort of following the rules as a way of purifying our minds. And, and the, the, the main purpose of this, this approach to the precepts is 
to subdue what it is that causes us and others so much suffering and that is our self-partiality, our clinging to our narrow, constricted sense of self, which can blind us to um, the harm we cause, both to ourselves and to others. So that's the first way of looking at them. But then the second way, the Mahayana, sometimes describe this as being the, the spirit of the precept rather than letter, the letter of the precept. Um, and it's more active in the sense that its um, emph emphasis in the Mahayana precepts is, is not what things look like, how they appear, so much as what's the core motivation for what we do. And it's, it's especially um, around um, helping to um, creating an, our, an attitude in ourselves of cherishing others as a way of cultivating love and compassion, a, a warm heart, a heart that, that um, resonates with others. So that's the Mahayana um, interpretation. And then the third one is um, the Buddha nature interpretation or perspective. And that's the one in which we go just completely beyond concepts of self and other. So we're no longer clinging to us, our narrow sense of self, but neither are we self-consciously helping others. We're not thinking in terms anymore of good and evil. Um, and this really is the perspective of awakening. Um, and it, it is, the, is the one, the, um, if we if we're, have awakened to this non-dual understanding of things, then not only will be, we be liberating ourselves from suffering, but that we'll be able to help others also uh, lead them towards liberating themselves. And we do this by um, embodying a transcendent truth, the truth of one mind and the truth of no mind. So the precepts are incredibly rich and we could spend a whole Taisho on each one and, and in the past I often have, but we're just going to really, really um, touch a little bit on each of these aspects in regard to the specific um, precept. So the first one we're going to look at is, I resolve not to gossip about the faults of others but to acknowledge my own shortcomings. So to gossip, we can, we can expand this. It's really um, to do with complaining about others, um, triangulating when we've got a problem with somebody, going to a third person and talking about, to them about how awful the other person is rather than um, dealing directly with that person could go up to very serious things such as public slander um, but really includes um, just criticizing people behind their backs that's the that's the most the most basic thing and there are there are two main ways in which this is is destructive we can look at it from the inter individual point of view 
and see the way in which if we do this, um, we, it's like we, we disavow, we, we ignore our own part, the part that we play in the problem we have with another person. Um, you know, it's, you can see it here in a psychological way. It's that the psychology of projection. We, 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 we project our own problems or impurities or, or, or um, foibles, um, imperfections, um, onto somebody else and we direct our annoyance at that person often because it's a it's a convenient way of of um, avoiding facing our own shortcomings and and of course the, or the one set of shortcomings that we really have a chance to do something about or to be able to change are our own um, came across a um, passage from a a Vajrayana teacher in regard to this um, from the um, Lojong mind training and um, this teacher says generally speaking we shouldn't concern ourselves with anyone's faults even those of animals in particular we shouldn't concern ourselves with the faults of those who have entered the Dharma so our fellow Dharma practitioners and among them particularly those we are living with and that includes our family members furthermore we should think thus if I see flaws in others they are nothing but the projections of my own confused mind not others faults all appearances are mind all appearances are mind very important point one we've been looking at in the in our Dharma study and we'll continue to. This teacher goes on to say um, that in general speaking of others faults and praising oneself is contrary to both Dharma and to worldly conventions. He goes further to say it's the origin of a Bodhisattva's defeat. Bodhisattva is one working to um, to awaken in order to be able to help others awaken. Um, and the reason, the reason why it's considered to be as kind of form of defeat is because um, it reinforces the very thing that we're trying to free ourselves from, reinforces a sense of self. He goes on to say, it's very important not to be preoccupied either with others' faults nor with one's own good qualities. In brief, be concerned about others' good qualities and your own faults. Because it's our own faults that we should abandon. But reading this, I thought, yeah, that's, that's fine in a culture where people tend to have, um, perhaps be, be proud or, or um, a little... Um, arrogant but in our culture we there there is this pervasive um, issue that people have with poor self-esteem so it's quite likely that that um, a number of us here in this room tonight 
praising oneself and disparaging others may not be, be so much of the problem. It may be more likely for us to be um, uh, dwelling excessively on our own faults and, and also um, seeing others as being superior to us dwelling on how much better other people are than we are at this or that. And, but doing this to the point of actually disempowering ourselves, um, it's a kind of reverse ego identity. If we, it's where we kind of cling to our shortcomings and in a sense, um, doing that and doing that, we're kind of letting ourselves off the hook because we're, we're imp implied is that we are a hopeless case um, other people can do it, but but somehow um, we can't change. But really, it's 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 the same in the sense that it's it's um, it's putting the emphasis on um, an idea of a fixed a fixed self. And defining ourselves and others labeling them so that's that's one side you could say the the psychological side of it um, there's also um, the effect that that gossip and and um, talking about people behind their backs creates in any group in any community um, it can be it can be very corrosive um, a community really needs needs trust in order to flourish, and um, gossip really really corrodes that kind of trust. And a community also needs needs to have a good flowing communication where people feel that they can. Um, uh, talk to be each other about problems and trying to work problems out and and creating uh, um, not speaking directly to people but talking to others um, blocks that flow it's very hard to solve um, problems if that trust is broken down Uh, it, because if it has, if if if, if um, it's hard for um, the different protagonists in some kind of conflict to to believe that the other person is, is has goodwill, then it's very very difficult. And we can look to many um, examples of in international affairs where things seem to have completely broken down because to, f to change a, to fix a conflict of some way somebody has to um, somebody has to yield somebody has to be willing to yield otherwise there can be no change one commentator on these the precepts Sandy Eastoke wrote not speaking against others requires the willingness to see our part in our difficulty with other people, to speak our experience honestly, and to negotiate mutual change. The, raw, the reward 
is the trust that keeps love growing. So if there is trust, then we'll be able to hear what people have to say about us. You know, it can be it can be things that might be difficult to hear. So that's the kind of literal literal um, way of looking at this precept. But if we if we move into the Mahayana aspect, then um, sometimes the the best way to keep this precept may be to speak up. Um, if you see a problem, for instance, if you see some kind of injustice, then um, it's imperative to, to, to speak truth to power. Today I got an email which um, had a, uh, a link to a letter that's been written from um, Buddhist leaders, um, I think hundreds of them, to, to um, President Trump speaking out against the separation of children from their parents that's happening as, they, as um, uh, people crossing into the USA. This has been turned into a crime. And so now um, the children, the parents are being separated. It's a, it's a, a terrible, sick um, and, and, and um, cynical uh, thing that's been um, playing out and now is becoming into the public eye. So there is a place for speaking out, but what counts is the, is the motivation. Is it, is it to prevent suffering? Or is it um, turning a blind eye to something in order to maintain a, a certain public image? If we turn then to the, the uh, Buddha nature aspect of this precept, we have Bodhidharma's um, verse. Uh, Self-nature is inconceivably wondrous. In the flawless Dharma, not expounding upon er error is called the precept of not talking of others' faults. Not expounding upon error. You can, you can practically hear the puffing up that is going on uh, in that. They're expounding on error. And think of all the blogs that expound on error. Um, Aiken Roshi, in talking about this precept, uh, linked it to um, a line many, many of you have heard me quote before from the commentary on the Koan Mu where it says that we need to cut off the mind road. The mind road is that endless stream of uh, thoughts and images that, that plays out in our heads. Aiken Roshi writes, to cut off the mind road is to experience total silence so that circumstances can be seen clearly and taken in clearly. Not to cut it off is to continue projecting one's own confused images on the world and then cling to them. So this goes really deep. 
It's not just a matter about a matter of, of not gossiping aloud, but the the internal correlation of uh, of not speaking of others' faults is to to um, realize that silence, to go to that place of silence. It, it doesn't mean, in, in going to this place of silence, it doesn't mean that um, it's also a place of darkness or no distinctions. Aitken Roshi writes, and this is from a fine book on the precepts called The Mind of Clover. The, ephem the ephemeral world is made up of relative elements, high and low, light and dark, loud and quiet. The sixth precept shows us how we can find intimacy with this world. The silent mind intuits directly and truly. She has an awful temper, or he is thoughtful of his friends. These can be experienced as basic information, free of any moral judgment and on a par with her hair is brown, or he has big feet. On the other hand, fault-finding, discussing the faults of others, these are acts of rejection. The difference is one of attitude, um, acts of rejection, talking against somebody. Dogen Zenji said, in the Buddha Dharma, there is one path, one Dharma, one realization, one practice. Don't permit fault-finding. Don't permit haphazard talk. While Bodhidharma points to essence, Dogen Zenji shows us the way to practice it. He insists that we must be single-minded, reject everything but the Buddha Tao. Among the things we must reject are fault-finding and haphazard speech. The fabric of the Buddhist Sangha is as fragile as the intention of a single member. One person can create havoc in a group by malicious talk. And, and um, again, there are times when we have to talk to somebody about their fault. But it's the way in which we talk and our understanding of what a fault is. Elsewhere in the same chapter, um, Aiken Roshi says, a so-called so fault is a weak place where change, where character may change. A so-called fault is a weak place where character may change. Um, can be very uh, encouraging to ourselves too if when we we recognize a fault that we have that we see it in this way as a place where um, there is a potential for change 
because it's kind of um, weak. Very helpful to understand it this way. On to the next one. Um, this, is, this is number seven. I resolve not to praise myself and disparage others, but to speak with humility and extol virtue. This one is very similar to the, the one before, uh, with the emphasis now on boasting, where the, where the put-down of others is, is um, implicit rather than obvious. Why, I used to ask myself this question, why are these two so similar? Because you could hardly even distinguish them. And my guess is it's because this question of right speech is so important. And we tend not to realize how important it is, perhaps because the negative results are less blatant often not, not um, physical, they're harder to see. And the, another reason I think why this one is particularly hard is it's one that afflicts people who are undertaking spiritual practice particularly, people who are followers of religions particularly. If we're, if we're sincerely practicing and we're trying to become more disciplined in our lives, we're making changes, we're having insights into things, we're also probably making sacrifices, it's quite likely that we will succumb to what the Christians call the sin of pride. Um, that we will, um, we will identify with all this work that we're doing on ourselves and then um, uh, protect, project onto others the, our, our own shadow side, the part of us that would rather be out not doing all this work. And then we resent those who seem to be getting away with um, all kinds of things. And see how, how, um, how easy it is for, for us in, in uh, in making an effort to do the right thing, you could say, of becoming puritanical. And this is a sure sign, pur being puritanical is a sure sign that we've identified with being good. But of course in doing this is again, we're defeating the whole purpose of, of taking up spiritual practice. Because any time we, we um, emphasize and and the self and puff ourselves up we're again strengthening that that self partiality which is is at the core of our suffering we're telling ourselves that we're special and there are three um, we've looked into this before there are three sort of varieties of the specialness that we particularly can get caught up in feeling that we're better than others, feeling that worse, we're worse than others. We've talked about these two. And then the third one, considering ourselves to be equal to others. 
So when we, when we think we're better than other people, we put them down. When we think we're worse than others, we put ourselves down. And then if we insist that we're equal to others, I'm as good as you are. We often ignore the fact that we may be, um, may, we may be equal, but we're also each of us very different. And so we ignore the differences. Uh, races are different. Different cultures have different needs. All these um, things can be, can be kind of uh, um, papered over. One commentator wrote, no one is more important than you. You are no more important than any other being. So both, both and. If we move on to the Mahayana interpretation of this not to praise myself and disparage others, but to speak with humility and extol virtue, what about if you're applying for a job? Don't you have to talk about your um, good qualities, your skills? What if you're a politician? There's a, there's a difficult one. Is it possible to be a politician and, and not break this precept? And that comes down to, um, can you talk about your strengths and your talents and do so without personally attacking your, your opponent or, or uh, disparaging others? Can you hold that, that telling of your own um, strengths and so forth lightly, understanding that it's, um, it has no roots, that it's without substance? Turning to the, the Buddha nature aspect of this, of this precept, Bodhidharma's verse goes, um, Self-nature is inconceivably wondrous. In the undifferentiated Dharma, not speaking of self and other is called the precept of refraining from praising yourself and disparaging others. Not speaking of self and other not thinking of self and other. And Yasutani Roshi, in his commentary on this, he says, ordinary people all have a deluded perception of a self standing against an other. This mental notion of self and other is only a product of deluded thought. It has no reality. Shakyamuni, the first to comprehend, taught that no self is the actual state of thing. things. This is Buddhism, the way of no self. When you hear about no self, don't become sad. Thanks to no self, the entire universe is self. The existence of anyone is that of the one self that has swallowed the universe. Yet not knowing that we are this majestic self, we make ourselves small. In our small selfishness, we mistakenly postulate another. Imagine a gulf between self and other where none exists and then exalt ourselves and criticize others. This is the upside down delusion of sentient beings. 
upside-down delusion of sentient beings. But then you would be very um, justified to ask, well, what about the baby Buddha? We just had this a few weeks ago at Vesak, where he is born from his mother's room, womb, takes seven steps and says, above the heavens, below the heavens, I am the honored one. Is he praising himself? Or has he swallowed the whole universe? So um, just to, to summarize a little bit about these, about these two, number six and number seven. On, on one side, we have, have gossip and slander and fault-finding, backbiting, complaining, triangulating. And then, and then the number seven, the sort of other side, arrogance, boasting, bragging. Inflating one's own importance, ignoring others, labeling, stereotyping, devaluing. Um, we'll put in here um, racism and racist language, sexist language, name calling. So the really these are these are two sides of one coin, uh, but the flavors are quite different with these two. But what they point to is the, really is the, the power of our speech and our thought in, in manufacturing delusion. And that really the, 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 the most profound way that we can um, sort of counteract this tendency is by connecting with the silence, cutting off the mind road. But short of that, that doesn't mean we can't just work on, on becoming more aware of when our speech is uh, against others, when it's, when it's um, creating a gulf, as, as Yasutani Roshi says, between self and other. Okay, I think we've got time just one more. This is number eight. I resolve not to withhold spiritual or material aid, but to give them freely where needed. Um, I think this one is pretty pretty straightforward. Um, uh, from the literal point of view, it's talking here about avoiding um, miserliness, uh, holding back. Uh, or to put it into positive terms, to to be to practice dana or generosity. Another way of thinking of it simply is just being aware to, um, willing to share whatever we have. Um, to to um, pass on what comes to us. Or can, we can relate it to to um, material things, um, money, possessions. It doesn't mean that we have to go and um, give away everything, though there, there are examples of that within, within uh, in Zen 
stories. Layman Pang is said to have uh, thrown everything into into the um, into a river and spent the rest of his life um, wandering around China, um, earning a pittance, weaving bamboo um, kitchen utensils. But um, it's not an all-or-nothing thing uh, for most of us. We do have we have responsibility to others, to children, but also to ourselves and where we are, what our needs are at this time. Um, need for uh, for uh, shelter, for privacy, for uh, a home. Um, so being being real about um, uh, what we need to um, take care of our own well-being and those of our family, people people we're responsible for. But of course, as the as the precept says, it's more than just material things. He's talking about it's talking about spiritual things as well, or intangible things, our energy, our skills. Um, ideas, our, our compassion and wisdom. There's um, the center of our, of our solar system, there's, there's um, a being called the sun that we can that we can emulate. Um, the sun um, burns up four million tons of itself in each moment, um, each second, and turns that four million tons of its matter itself into, into um, light. Just read a little bit. Um, this is from uh, cosmologist Brian Swim. The sun, each second, transforms four million tons of itself into light. Each second, a huge chunk of the sun vanishes into radiant energy that soars away in all directions. In the case of the sun, we have a new understanding of the cosmological meaning of sacrifice. The sun is, with each second, giving itself over to become energy that we, with every meal, partake of. We so rarely reflect on this basic truth of biology, and yet its spiritual significance is supreme. The sun converts itself into a flow of energy that photosynthesis changes into plants that are consumed by animals. So for four million years, humans have been feeding on the sun's energy stored in the form of wheat or maize or reindeer as each day the sun dies as sun and is reborn as the vitality of the earth. And those solar flares are in fact the vitality of the vast human enterprise. The sun's story will find its climax in a story from the human family of those men and women whose lives manifested in the same generosity and whose sacrifice enabled others to reach fulfillment. 
If through the ages the various cultures have admired such people who poured out of their center energies so that others might live, we were only intuitively recognizing that those humans were true to the nature of the energy that, has, that filled them. Can we be true to the nature of the energy that fills us? Human generosity is only possible because at the center of the solar system, a magnificent stellar generosity pours forth free energy day and night without stop and without complaint and without the slightest hesitation. This is the way of the universe. This is the way of life. And this is the way in which each of us joins this cosmological lineage when we accept the sun's gift of energy and transform it into creative action that will enable the community to flourish. This is a, um, some of you will have heard this before because it's such a, um, um, it's such an, an inspiration that is always there for us to, to draw on, and to remind ourselves of. Uh, elsewhere, Brian Swim says, the ground of being is generosity. The ground of being is generosity. If we look at this, if we just very quickly look at this pre precept from the Mahayana, um, we have to remind ourselves that, that um, sometimes generosity is withholding. Um, not lending money to your alcoholic friend who will just go and use it in a way to make his life more of a misery. Or um, sometimes we have to not let somebody go to Sashin who wants to because they're not ready or it uh, wouldn't help them at that point in their lives. So we have to be, be, um, be aware that there is this side to um, generosity. And as our time is up, we'll just finish now with the um, with the with Bodhidharma's verse on this precept. Self nature is inconceivably wondrous. In the all pervading true Dharma, not clinging to one form is called the precept of refraining from withholding spiritual material aid. The all pervading true Dharma. This means that the whole universe is nothing other than our true nature. And so if we really, really deeply understood that, then we would understand that we can't lose anything. And so we wouldn't need to cling, we wouldn't need to practice acquisitiveness, because uh, we'd realize, um, as Yasutani puts it, that all the myriad things of heaven and earth are just truth. There's no, no place to feel stingy about anything. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings.
Kings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.